Well, good morning. It's good to be with you again this morning. Happy spring to you. I don't know about you, but I'm excited to have a little bit longer days, more daylight, brighter days, and warmer weather. Uh, it, it always brightens my spirit, makes me feel better, so, so it's good. Let's start with a word of prayer as we begin this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning so thankful, so privileged to be called yours. Father, we, we gather this morning to worship you. We don't gather for ourselves. We don't gather to make someone else known. We gather to worship the name of Jesus. We gather to worship you, our Heavenly Father. And we rejoice in your Holy Spirit. Father, we come this morning celebrating the truth and the life that we have. And Father, we gather this morning to make great your name. So, Father, we pray that You would bless our time this morning, that You would allow us to get to know You just a little better. Father, that You would grant us the privilege of knowing You. Father, we pray this morning that, that I would yield, that this wouldn't be a focus on me, Father, but, but it would be a focus on and a time to focus on Your Word and Your Spirit and Your truth. And Father, we pray that Your Word would speak to us, that it would shape and that it would mold us. Father, that we would let down our guard this morning to be shaped and molded by You. So Father, we gather now. After singing and praising Your name through song, we want to praise Your name through studying Your Word. And Father, we want to grow to become a little more like You today. So Father, we pray You'll bless. You'll bless our time in Your Word this morning. We pray that You would speak to us. Father, that, that we would let down our guard and that we would be open-minded to what You might have to say to us today. Father, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your grace. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Well, several years ago, I was in college at uh, the University of Tennessee, and uh, while there, you know, you take a ton of classes, and I can remember being so aggravated because, you know, you come in, you have to take all the general ed courses before you can move on to the stuff that you really want to focus on in your major, and I can remember in several of those courses, uh, we would be assigned group projects. And I can remember thinking the very first time we had a group project, okay, maybe this, maybe this will be okay. Maybe it'll go all right. And then I quickly learned that you'd always have a few in the group project who did an excellent job. But there was always at least one that would hardly ever show up or hardly ever carry their load or, or continue on with what they were supposed to do or, or, or meet their assignment. And man, let me tell you, every time after that, every time we were assigned a group project, I would look at it and go, oh no, not another group project. They drive me nuts, you know, because I was the one that, I would try to be there for every meeting. I would try to participate, do my job, because my grade is depending on it. Well, I can remember in this one class I had, it was a sociology class, we had this big group project that we had to do. And as soon as I saw it in the first day of class, it was on the syllabus, and I thought, oh man, this is going to be miserable. 
But I can remember my professor standing up there, and he, and he was, made this announcement that he said, okay, you have a group project, but he said, let me tell you, I've learned something over the years. I've learned something. I know that some of you, you excel in group projects, but I know there's a few of you who won't do hardly anything. And he said, so that's why in this group project or in my class, I'm going to allow you to grade each other within the group project. And I thought, yes, you know, <laughs> this is how it should be. So, uh, you know, hey, I, I went to UT. Now, I love UT. I, you know, while I was there and paying tuition, I didn't really, well, I wasn't excited about that part, but I, but I love it. But I can tell you what, the, is there, is there anybody in here a college athlete? No? Oh, okay. Okay, well, nothing against college athletes. I love them. But, man, we had a football player in that class, and he was in my group. And I tell you what, that guy hardly ever showed up to anything. Now, I'm not, I'm not faulting the football players because I think he was a pretty good guy. But I can remember as that group project continued, he stopped coming to the meetings. You know, we'd have to meet after class, go over stuff, and figure out, because we had to put this big paper, this big presentation together. And then at the end of the semester, we had to stand before the class and present our findings, you know, present the result, present all the, all the information. And man, this guy would hardly ever show up. So, you know, it's not just me. There's a few, few others in the group that are like, as this goes on, where is he? Where, what, what, you know, he was supposed to have this done by this point. He was supposed to have that done by this point. You know, what, what happened to him? Where did he go? And, uh, you know, we, we even checked with the professor. Is he still a part of the class? <laughs> you know, like, where did he go? And, uh, Anyway, as the semester went on, it became more and more and more frustrating because the rest of us were committed. We were there. We were doing our fair share. We were pulling our load, and we were doing our part, right? I can remember on the last, or, or the, it wasn't the last day of the class, but it was the class when, when it was our turn to get up and give the presentation. And guess who shows up to class? <laughs> this guy. He shows up to class and he goes, hey man, wh wh what's my part? What do I need to say when I get up there? And we're like, what? What do you need to say? Where have you been? Well, you can kind of fill in the blanks on what happened. We all got to grade each other as a part of that project. You know what I'm saying? And, we, and it, wasn't, it wasn't, you know, we didn't go, you made an A, you made a, you made a B. We got to fill out on a piece of paper and turn it in to the professor so he could see. And I know for a fact that everybody gave him an F because he was never there. Have you ever been a part of a project? Now, now I just learned today that you had a work day yesterday, so don't throw, throw anybody under the bus right now. <laughs> but, but have you ever been a part of a project or a work assignment or some type of something where you felt like, man, I'm here, I'm committed, I'm pouring it all in. But where's everybody else? Or where's so-and-so? Or, man, what, what happened? Where, what, why, did, why aren't they so committed? Why aren't they as devoted as I am? Have you ever experienced anything like that? I've experienced that several times. Today, today we're going to talk about the extravagance of devotion. You know, I, I don't know about you, but, man, it is so easy over the course of a Christian life that, man, you can be fired up and excited and, and all in. I'm talking all in at times. But then there's other times when it's like, Lord, I don't know about that. I don't think I can, I don't think I can be all in on this. Lord, I, I'm really struggling with this. 
And you know what? Today, we're going to see in this passage the extravagance of devotion. And how when we, when we are devoted, when we are committed, it's way more than just a group project. It's way more than just a work project. It's way more than just a work assignment. It's a heart issue. It's an issue with our heart. And before a holy God, He's calling us to give it all to Him. He wants our hearts. He wants our minds. He wants our soul. He wants it all. And today we're going to see in the passage that we're going to look at the extravagance of devotion. And it's going to be really interesting because today the way the writer writes this, he's going to show us and he's going to show us some contrasting elements and he's going to show us what the what what ultimate and complete devotion looks like. Today we're going to read in in Mark chapter 14. So if you would turn with me there, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. So today in this passage, I, I, don't know, I don't know who's speaking next Sunday. I don't know what you all are doing, but Easter's coming up, right? And, uh, and in Mark chapter 14, this is the, uh, the beginning of the passion narrative. And, and, and uh, things are about to really, really get going here for Jesus. We, if, you, if you had had the time to read through Mark up to this point, you would have seen Jesus' ministry and, and the way that He's worked with His disciples and the way, that he's, the way that He's contrasted everything that everyone thought the coming Messiah would be, right? As a matter of fact, so many people are going, that cannot be the coming King. No way. I don't believe it. I don't buy it. But if you followed Jesus closely, you would have seen things that you could never see. <laughs> you could never experience even today. Some of the miracles, some of the workings, some of the things that, that Jesus did, the way He talked and acted. You would never see anyone that could do that today. So, so we see, uh, we come to the point in, in, this, uh, in this book, in the Gospel of Mark, where, where Jesus is, is about to enter uh, Jerusalem and, and they're... they're it's almost to the uh, Passover feast. It's a couple days before the Passover celebration. And uh, as we come to uh, Mark chapter 14, let's start reading in, in Mark chapter 14, verse 1. He says, And it was, now, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. Now this is very interesting right now because we have to set uh, the setting of what's going on. Jerusalem is a very busy place right now, right? Jerusalem, this, this town in this area is filled with people. I mean, they've come from all over. Pilgrims and migrants have come from, from all over to celebrate the Passover feast. So this is the same festival that, do you remember the story when Jesus was a little boy? Uh, Joseph and Mary, they forget him in the temple. And when they find him, you know, he's, he's arguing with the, with the priests and everybody. You know, it, th that's what's going on now. So that gives you a picture of some of the chaos that's happening. A parent could walk off and forget their child in the crowd. Think of it like this. I mean, speaking of college sports, think of it like this. In Jerusalem, you can read all kinds of different studies and historical studies that were done, and there's, there's up to an extra 120 to 350,000 people in Jerusalem during this time. Now, that's a lot of people. Think about it. Now, all these people, they don't just come walking in, or they don't come pulling in their BMW and pulling in park, right? 
All these people, they're riding in on horses. They got donkeys. They have animals to make sacrifices. They have, I mean, there's a lot going on. Not only that, but there's, there's people that are selling things and people that are, are, are all these tents and all these, I mean, think of it like this. Have you ever gone to a game day for a UT football game in the fall? There's a lot going on down there. There's a whole lot going on. I mean, there's people that have traveled from all over. They're staying in hotels. They're eating in restaurants. There's, there's people all over. Now imagine them all on a horse <laughs> or pulling a donkey or bringing a goat or bringing a lamb or something to sacrifice. You've got 110,000 people that are all coming with animals, walking through the streets. Imagine the smells. Imagine the, 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 the ambiance of the scene. You know what I'm saying? Now there could be up to 350,000 extra people in Jerusalem. There's a lot going on. So you have all of that, all of that commotion, all the noise, all the, the energy from the crowds. And it says it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. I mean, Mark just lays it right out there. There's no, there's no uh, candy coating anything, man. These guys were looking for a way. And all of the commotion, and all the crowds, and all the smells, and all the stuff going on, these guys are looking for a way to arrest him. How can we find him in this crowd and get him? Because with all the stuff going on, we could make up something, and they're going to believe it, that he caused some kind of commotion, that he caused some kind of problem, that he caused something to go wrong. As a matter of fact, as I was studying about this passage, you know, I was reading that, that uh, a lot of the, the Roman guards, even, even, uh, even the guards that would live along the coast of the Mediterranean, they would, they would travel to Jerusalem during this time to make sure that there was enough power and authority there in case something went wrong because, man, they would fix it quick. Because if things got out of hand and you had 350,000 people causing a riot, you had a major problem on your hands. So the chief priests and the scribes, they knew if they could just accuse him of something, if they could just find some little thing to get him, then they could, and this was the time to do it. So that's why they're, they're talking, they're scheming. They're seeking how to arrest him. Just how can we get him in our hands? And, they want, and not, not just to arrest him, but they wanted to do it in secret, and they wanted to do it to kill him. <laughs> in verse 2 it says for they said not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people we don't want to do it in a big crazy fashion we don't want to make a big celebration out of it we just want to get him in secret so that so that we can kill him you know the interesting thing is that as we read we're going to read chapter 14 verses 1 through 11 today and the way that Mark writes his gospel, he writes this almost as, a, as kind of like a sandwich uh, passage, if you will. And what I mean by that is you have the top bun, you have the meat, and then you have the bottom bun. He's, it's a sandwich. And, uh, and, and verses 14, 1 through 2, that's the top bun. And then for, uh, verses 3 through 9, that's the meat. That's the middle part. And then verses 10 through 11, that's the bottom bun. So he writes this as kind of a sandwich passage, and what he's doing here is he's giving you three different responses to who Jesus is. And he puts them kind of in a sandwich uh, 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 package here. 
So the first one we have in verses one, verses 1 and 2, we have the scribes and the priests. And we see their response. If someone were to walk in town and with a big microphone in front of all of these people and say, hey, Jerusalem, who do you say Jesus is? All the scribes and the priests would what? They would deny him. They would say, this man is crazy. This man is out to undo everything that we stand for. This man is out to cause turmoil. This man has messed up everything that we stand for. As a matter of fact, he just threatened to destroy our temple. As a matter of fact, he, he wants to do away with all the sacrifices. As a matter of fact, he's told us that, that we don't really mean anything anymore. That the message that he's bringing, well, it goes to the Gentiles too. Are you kidding me? This man is crazy. We want nothing to do with him. As a matter of fact, if you'll turn him over to us, we'll do away with him. That's exactly what we see in Mark 14, 1 through 2. A couple of days before this Passover feast, they're working in secret to find a way to arrest Jesus in secret to kill him, to do away with him. What is their response to Jesus? They've denied him. They see him as a nuisance to their plans. Let me ask you something. Has there ever been a time when you have denied Christ the authority that he should have? Has there ever been a time for you when you have said, Jesus, not today. I'm not doing it today. No, thank you, Jesus. I can't. Not today. You know what, Jesus? I, ugh, you're really getting on my nerves today because I really wanted to do that. Jesus, you're really being a nuisance today. Jesus, I don't want to submit to what you want today. You know, this is exactly what we see from the chief priests and the scribes. Now, there's a lot more going on here than just that. Because he, Jesus, is disrupting their entire system, right? And they know it. And they want to prevent it at all costs. But that's the response we see. Are you like these religious leaders? Unwilling, unwilling to submit and to follow Jesus. That's a question between you and him. But I want you to ask yourself that. Am I like that? You know, we, we become experts at justifying a lot of what we do. You know it? I mean, we become professional experts at God. You know, I'm going to do this, but I'm not really doing it for you. I'm really doing it for my own pride. You know it? Because it makes me feel good. And I like feeling good. And I'm going to do whatever I want to make myself feel good. So God, I, yeah, I, I may even use your name. I may even use your name to build something great, to do something great, to give to something great. But really, I'm doing it for my own pride. These religious leaders, they're showing, us, they're showing us what it looks like to completely deny and to justify their denial. Now look what Mark does. Look what Mark does. He takes us from that, from that type of thinking and he introduces us to another. In verse 3 we pick it up and we see, And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table 
You know, in this, in this uh, setting, in this day and age, you have all the commotion, the animals, the people, and everything going on outside. And while he's in Bethany at Simon the leper, he's reclining at table. And what that means is they would eat at a small table, but they would eat on the floor. They would lay, they would kind of recline on the floor, laying there, propped up. And they're all sitting there with the disciple. He's sitting there with the, with the disciples and Simon and, and, and the people of his household, and he's eating at this table. And it says a woman, a woman came in. This lady doesn't even have a name. A woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard. Very costly. Very costly. Now, we have to stop there because this is really interesting. Mark is writing and he shows us the chief, pre, chief, chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, and he shows that they've completely denied Christ. They want nothing to do with him. As a matter of fact, they want to do away with him. And then he changes the whole tune and he says, but while Jesus, while Jesus is eating, this woman walks in. She doesn't even have a name. This woman walks in. Maybe, maybe she had followed the, the disciples around. Maybe she knew Simon. I, we don't know. But she walks in, and she has an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. It's, it's really expensive. I mean, as a matter of fact, most scholars would say that this might be like a family heirloom of some sort or something that, that she had been handed down, and it was kind of the, the last resort of income, if you will. If all else went wrong, man, she could go and she could sell this thing and she could make a lot of money, as a matter of fact. Look, it says it was very costly. It cost a lot of money. It was worth a lot of money. And what does she do? What does she do with it? It says, and she broke, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, you think about something that you have that's worth a lot of money. This lady has, has this ointment. It's in an alabaster flask. And what does she do with it? Does she gently twist the cap off? Here, just a few drops, Jesus, because <laughs> it's worth a lot of money. I don't want to give it all away. Here, here, let me easily get the cork out of the top. Just a few drops, Jesus. No way, we're not going to waste all of it. Yeah, man, it's worth a ton. You kidding me? My family would be mad at me if I just gave it all away. What does she do? She breaks it and pours the whole thing over his head. The whole thing. Now think about it. Think about it. In our day and age of equality, this woman had nothing. She was worth nothing. She couldn't just go get a job. She may have had no husband. She was dependent on that. That was her everything or could have been her everything. It wasn't like, well, she'll be all right. She'll go down to the church and they'll hand her some food and they'll hand her some clothes. And they'll... No, you kidding me? This woman gives everything that she has. She broke the jar. She poured the whole thing over his head. As a matter of fact, I mean, you think about it. He's laying on the floor. He's laying on the floor, probably propped up on one arm or reclining on a pillow. And she walks in and pours the whole thing over his head. All of the disciples are sitting around this table and all the people are sitting and they're, and they're all going, whoa, what, what did you do? 
Are you kidding me? You just wasted all of that. Look, look, in, uh, in, in, verse, in verse 4 it says, There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? Look at that. That thing was worth a ton. Why was it wasted like that? Look, in verse 5 it says, For this ointment, it could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now you think about that. A denarii or a denarii, it, it was worth one day's worth of wages for a workman. Okay, so you think about that in today's day and age. Take minimum wage. One day's worth of minimum wage. That's over 300 days worth. That's a year's. That's a year's worth of income for someone today. Now you think about that. Now I don't know. You can come up with whatever figure you want, but you think of a, you think of some ointment, some bottle of ointment that was worth twenty to forty thousand dollars. Put it into perspective. Would you have walked in and broke it and poured it over his head? I'm telling you right now, it'd have been hard for me to do it. It'd have been hard for me to dump the whole bottle on Jesus' head. But that's exactly what she did. She broke it. She poured the whole thing, twenty to $40,000 worth. She poured it over his head. Now, when I was in seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary, I had the chance to, well, I didn't have the chance, I had to. I had to work a part-time job, and I worked in, in a, it was a club, it was called the Dallas Petroleum Club. I'm not making this up. Dallas Petroleum Club, and this was for oil executives and natural gas executives to come and entertain guests. And uh, we were on the 41st floor of a big building downtown, and in this building, there, or in the center of, of the club in this building, they had this wine cellar. Y'all, I'm not making this up. In this wine cellar, these oil companies and executives could have bottles of wine brought in that they would use to entertain guests when they wanted to. There were bottles of wine in there that were worth $120,000 a bottle. <laughs> I had a key to that room, but I never went in there. Let me tell you something, because I didn't want to break anything. They had bottles of wine that were $120,000 a piece. Can you imagine opening a bottle of wine that was worth $120,000? I couldn't. I'd be afraid to drink it. I'd be afraid to do anything with it. I'd be afraid to touch it. But that's, that's what they were doing. So it is possible. I mean, you just think about that. Think about how expensive that is and just it blows my mind. I, I wouldn't even know what to do with it. This woman, this woman, this was everything that she had. And she broke the jar and, and she poured it on his head and said, it's, uh, that's it. And she did it for a reason. If we keep looking, you know, we, we have all the people that are like, this, is, this woman's crazy. What, what did she just do? She wasted the entire thing. Well, it says in verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Jesus speaks up after all the clamoring and going on. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. She has done the most beautiful thing you could do. In verse 7 it says, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Right now, Jesus is no, he knows what's coming. And he's almost prophesying that, look guys, in a couple days, although you're, you're my disciples and none of you get what's going on, 
in a couple of days I'll be gone. And this woman, who we don't even know who she is, <laughs> we don't even know her name, she walks in and she devotes it all to me. She has done a beautiful thing. For you'll always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. That's really important. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Verse 9 says, And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And you know what? Over 2,000 years later, we are reading it right here today. We are. This woman walks in and devotes it all. Now you just think, you have the religious leaders who have denied Jesus. No, as a matter of fact, we're trying to get him because we want to kill him. And then we see this humble lady. <laughs> we don't even know her name, but we know her story. She walks in and she devotes it all in the most extravagant way that she could. You know why? Because she gave what she could. She gave it. She gave it all. There is no question where her heart is when she did that. You know what? Let me ask you something. Is there a question? of where your heart is today. Think about it. Jesus says, look, what she has done, it'll be told, it'll be told, it'll be remembered. Whenever the gospel is preached, it will be remembered. Well, we gotta, we got to finish up here. Verses 10 through 11, we see another response. And look how Mark does this in his gospel. It says, then Judas... Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, well, he went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad, and they promised to give him money. <laughs> they promised to give him money. This woman just devotes it all. I mean, gave a ton, gave a ton of money to, or, or sacrificed it all for Jesus to be anointed. And then you have Judas, who goes... And says, hey, hey guys, I know right where Jesus is. I know right what he's doing. And if you'll give me a little bit of money, I'll hand him over to you. And the chief priests were so excited that when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see what Mark's doing here? He's given three different contrasting responses to who Jesus is. You can be like the religious leaders and say, Jesus, you're messing up my plan. And you're getting on my nerves and I don't want anything to do with you. As a matter of fact, I wish somebody would get you and take you away. Or you can be like this woman who shows the most extra extravagant devotion that you could ever see and says, Jesus, all I have, all my things, all my money, all my time, all my energy, all my talents, my mind, and my heart, they're all yours. Or, or you can be like Judas. And you can say, Jesus, I've tasted just a little bit, and I think i got enough. And you know what? I've decided, I've decided to betray you as soon as I can. I don't want anything to do with you. 
you know, some, some people, some scholars, you know, they've written in, in different commentaries that, you know, it's interesting here that Mark doesn't really give a reason for why Judas betrays Jesus. You can look in, in Luke and in John and, and, you know, they say, well, the devil entered, entered Judas or, or he was greedy or he was coveting or whatever. But Mark doesn't give a reason. And you know what Mark is doing? I think what he's doing here is he's trying to provoke us to think. As followers of Christ, we don't really need a reason to betray him. As a matter of fact, we'll, if you keep reading, you'll see in a few days that even Peter, <laughs> right? Peter denies Christ. And I think he's saying here, look, you can be a follower. You can claim to be a follower. But you better be on guard. You better be alert because you have to, you have to watch out. Because at any moment, any one of his followers can fall away, can, can, can deny him or begin, begin faulting and denying him. Even to the point that, that Judas, Judas, whew, man, he turns him over to the chief priest. Some scholars would also say that, that maybe Judas was a, was a zealot. He was one of those that was so excited and so passionate about what, Je what Jesus was doing that he got frustrated with Jesus. And he was trying to make Jesus act. He was trying to turn him over to say, man, I will kick this kingdom into full throttle when I turn him over. And then Jesus unleashes all the power and fury. And you know what? It blew right up in his face because Jesus submitted, right? And he said, it's not my will, but it's the Father's will. I didn't come here to fight a fight with you. I came here to fight a fight with our enemy. And he wins, right? So some say maybe, maybe Judas did that, but, but still, the interesting thing here is that Mark doesn't give a reason. So it kind of provokes us to ask, man, am I, am I tempted to be like Judas? When Jesus doesn't ask, or when Jesus, when Jesus doesn't act the way that I think he should be, am I going to betray him? So think about it. There's three responses here. You can be like the religious leaders and deny him. You can be like this woman who shows extravagant devotion. Or you can be like Judas, who responds in the way of, I've tasted just enough, and I've had enough. I'm going to go find my own way. I want to ask you today, what's your response to this person, Jesus? What is your response to him? Do you deny him? Do you not want to give him control? Are you willing to devote yourself to him? Or are you, are you willing to betray him? Think about it. You know, God calls us to be fully committed. He calls us to be fully devoted followers of Christ, actually. And you know, there's several different references to that in Scripture. You can look all the way back to maybe Isaiah chapter 1. Remember where, where God is writing and, and, he, and He's talking to these folks and He's saying, look, I, I've, I've seen and I've smelled and I've heard all of, your, all of your sacrifices, but you know what? I don't really want the blood of animals. I want your heart. I want you. That's what I want. I want you to love me and to follow me and I want to be in a relationship with you. And here, that's what we see. That's what we see. Our response should be, Lord, how can I be extravagantly devoted to you? How can I follow you? How can I trust you? How can I submit to what you have called me to do and called me to be? Hey, think with me. What could happen 
What could happen at Faith Fellowship? What could happen if all of you together said, God, we are fully committed. We are fully devoted to you. No matter the cost, no matter the temptation, no matter the struggle, no matter the circumstance, God, we are yours. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today so thankful that you love us unconditionally. Father, that you care for us. Father, that you have called us. Father, we are not here this morning by mistake. Father, you have sovereignly worked to have us here today together, worshiping together, studying your word together. And Father, we come together this morning and rejoice in how you love us. So Father, as we have gathered together this morning, would you help us to see how can we, how can we be devoted to you? How can we show that, that we are yours, Father? Father, what are you calling us to do? What are you calling us to be? Who are you calling us to go reach? Father, help us. Help us to be followers of you. Father, as we are in this season of the of, of, of the Easter season coming up, we, we think about some of this uh, passion narrative and we think, Father, we think of how grateful we are. Really, just how grateful we are that a man, that a man died for us, Father. That he gave his life for us so that we could have a relationship with you. Father, today, would you help us to constantly have on our mind this man, Jesus, who was God in the flesh and who gave himself for us. Father, we thank you so much for how you love us, for how you have loved us. You know, the crazy thing is that in that text, with all three of those groups of people, Jesus died for them all and offered, offered forgiveness to them all. It was just that some failed to take it. Father, would you, would you help us to learn from their mistake? Would you help us to be like this woman who gave, who gave sacrificially for you, to honor you, to glorify you. And would you help us to trust and to follow you as we move forward. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.